episode of Hidden in Plain Sight.、Uh, we're here. I'm Echo. I'm Duck. And I'm Jenny. Yeah, let's dive in.、Um, so, how is everyone doing during this、uh, Lunar New Year thing? Do you celebrate? I don't.、No. If I were in Korea with with some of my family members, I probably would, but not here. Echo, that's a that's a great question, and it's、uh, something I kind of been wrestling with,、um, you know, in my、uh, years in the U.S. Right, working and going to school because it's、um, something that's, you know, I think we celebrate as a community, but isn't really recognized at the you know maybe even the the national the state level, or even enough so that you know there's time off for it. For me, wanting like、uh, you know. It's it's kind of a, I'm pulled both ways in that do I take time off to celebrate and kind of engage in with the community, or do I you know not celebrate or limit that and just like keep my workload the way it is? Otherwise, you know that 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 double edged sword is that you know I take time off when people are coming back and I miss out on things and I miss out on、um, you know important meetings or things that other things I need to be part of. As people are ramping back from the you know Gregorian New Year, I don't know. There's a part of me that feels like, you know, I like you know people encourage it, but then there isn't really that time to really have that. I, I feel like I don't have the ability to really take that off because if we think about December, right, you got Christmas, New Year's, right, and then people start coming back and. Depending on when the Lunar New Year is, right? Because it changes every year. It could come around, you know, January or even February, and it's not really、mm-hmm. something that、um, I don't know. I would say when I was younger and I didn't have, I had fewer responsibilities. It was easier to celebrate with the community. As I get a little bit older, and I have more responsibilities. It's really hard to really take time away and kind of find community as well too. And for me, that's all.、Uh, that's kind of been the the push and pull of this. And、uh, yeah, just want to give my two cents on that because I know some states. I think New York has recognized it, but not every state has. And it's really hard to celebrate something when you know it's not even really even talked about in the workplace. Yeah, I think、uh, New York City actually had that back in 2021. They make it like the the city holidays for public school and state、uh, the city government. And then California had it last year. So California became the first state actually had Lunar New Year as the state holiday. And this came out like two days ago.、Uh, New York New York State actually announced. The next year, the Lunar New Year is going to be the state holiday. So it's the second state that has announced that.、Uh, I'm super grateful for that, even though like my company itself is not going to have that、uh, yet. But、uh, mm-hmm. but I was literally on the FaceTime call with my family for like five hours,、um, and just having more of like virtual、mm-hmm. celebration with them, and that boosted my morale、uh, quite a bit. And I appreciate that. I I took that day off on the the January twenty、uh, third, I believe that was the day, um, and and I thought like that's a great experience for me. So I appreciate the companies that actually um give the opportunity for the employees to choose their own like holiday, but also recognizing it's not every employees have that luxury to celebrate it. So from what I'm hearing is. We want workplaces to include Lunar New Year in their holiday calendar, so Asians can go and celebrate their Lunar New Year. And there may be some that don't celebrate, and that's okay. True, you might not celebrate it, but you still appreciate a day off, no? That's why, like, I like this idea. I think in the past few years,、um, people are talking about this com- concept as like a floating holiday, where the employees can choose their own. Your own like a PTO, but the concept of, like now you can pick two or three holidays out of your own like pick and celebrate it. It gives more of a flexibility、uh, to people who don't celebrate the traditional like Christmas or、uh, New Year. For Christmas, that's something like、mm-hmm. unique that has its own like history there. But I like 
this like floating holiday concept similar to um, some of the companies giving perks and they mm-hmm. they give a broad range of categories where people can pick their own thing so for like singles they can pick their own thing for like a gym membership but for like caregivers they can pick this for like nursery or nannies um so i I like that kind of like flexible arrangement cool i didn't even know that was a thing if i could add to that um you know this i mean it'd be great if organizations like recognize it and then like i guess this is the other thing that we would like to also see is like you know um you know if there's this explicit uh commitment to it to actually then to really follow up and allow for that flexibility because i feel like you know, sometimes organizations react to news or sensationalize social media and make short-term um, changes. Mm, yeah, I know what you're talking about, like sort of the, the superficial check-the-box kind of changes, the, the ones that don't stick yeah. around. Yeah, absolutely. And look, look this is probably the same thing that has applied in the last two years with the aftermath of George Floyd, right? Guess what? Like a lot of programs came out a lot of diversity initiatives came out Mm -hmm. two years ago right where are they now right this is this is where like you know for me i would like organizations to like if you can commit to it you know be real and be realistic with it like don't go overboard and say we're gonna do this and that and all that and then 18 months later you know oh well we don't have the funds the first thing we're gonna cut is diversity training or microaggression training or limiting biases in the workplace it's very frustrating do you think that it's dying down do you see that already happening duck um oh i I mean i would say that it's um the intensity isn't in the fervor just isn't the same the amount of work that i feel like uh people were looking to put in like people color and potentially allies were looking to put in that energy isn't isn't there and isn't the same. Uh, I would oh. say, you know, I, uh, in uh, my past work, I was uh, um, a director of people, and I actually ran the DEI program. Mm-hmm. You know, and when this stuff happened, there was a lot of, how do I make this change? How do we end racism? They really didn't like it when I said, well, look, a lot of this stuff has been happening for a long time. You just haven't read it, or you haven't been in the news cycle of it. But historically, a lot of this stuff has been happening. It just happens to be happening again. And because we're in uh, lockdown during COVID, that's a lot of the news that you're getting nowadays, right? But the sad part is like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's been happening systemically has been happening systemically. And it's just, um, if, but, and if organizations want to play a role and they want to play a positive role in people's lives, their workplaces, I'd ask organizations to be serious about it and take serious consideration and not superficial like you said like jenny like you said checking it off uh checking off those boxes you know if you can't accommodate like let let your employees know that you can't but you're trying now that's better than you know we're gonna do it but for this one year well guess what lunar new year's is gonna happen again next year well that's a very good point duck because with the economy the way it is right now you know a lot of companies are tightening their budgets and DEI is, you know, unfortunately one of the places that gets cut first, but at least from where I sit, um, and I work with a lot of pharma companies and pharma execs, that hasn't been the case. The fervor is still there and it's feeding a lot of our projects. What about you, Echo? Yeah, um, that's an interesting one for sure. And what Doug has mentioned got me thinking on like, because mm. uh, even like at the beginning during our checking, I mentioned a lot of companies now really only focus on like revenue generating activities now for the business, given the microeconomic situation mm-hmm. that we're facing right now. I'm not yet seeing like there's any cut on, on the budget for like diversity related activities yet, but it's just the, the, the mindset now we're moving towards more of like a budget conscious and um, constrained environment that worries me. Maybe like to too early to say this is like alarming but i just wanted to make sure like when companies are thinking about that realizing this is also like long-term commitment this is not something that once you get into the place and then you feel like you can walk out in two years that's probably what i'm going to share for now 
and I don't know if this is also being relevant. I'm also grateful to see more and more companies sponsor the ERG, which is Employee Resource Group, as part of the regular activity now, or like a reasonable business activity. So I remember a few years back when I was served on the one of the ERG board back then uh, during like my previous roles, and there was pro bono. Like I do everything out of my like own work time. It's a lot of coordination and having meetings with different parties to get things done to to do those activities. So it's unpaid volunteer activity. But in recent years, I started seeing like people started to pay for those people who serve on the ERG board. So I think this is great start. Mm-hmm. Meaning like people recognize this itself is a is important work, and that's why like we. People seeing the value. That's why people start to pay for those work that gets done, and that's something that it's a great direction that I wanted to see. But to the point that we mentioned earlier, with this like tighter economic situation, would that change for the future? I don't know. I, I'm yet to know. As long as employees are willing to put their organization's foot to the fire and. Demand accountability. I see this movement, you know, continuing. And at least in my line of work, I haven't seen that fervor really um, go down,、um, as I mentioned before. And I'm actually, you know, glad that we're seeing more examples of, you know, employees going on social media to expose toxic leadership and toxic workplaces,、um, because if it hadn't been for them, you know, the public would not be aware of these things. Um, yeah, and I think a, a recent example was what happened at the New York Times, where one of the editors had to step down. I think he had to step down. I don't think he was fired,、um, but he had a history of saying racist stuff and sensitive stuff. So、um, the other employees were like, "This is not. This is not going to continue." So he eventually had to step down. And something similar happened. I I think at Bon Appetit.、Um, Yeah, maybe. Yeah, could you look it up?、Um, yeah, Bon Appetit.、Uh, yeah, did you find it? I, I believe the headline is、uh, Adam Rapoport、uh, steps down. Down. Okay, so he was the, fired. That's the politically correct、uh, headline. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the reason for him stepping down? Um, um, it says something to the extent of addressing racially insensitive costume that surfaced. Okay, so it was a costume. Okay, good, good. Well, I'm glad he got fired or he had to step down.、Um, I don't think I would support that magazine if you know they allowed him to to stay on. Hmm. I mean, there's a bit of this that's kind of、um, kind of frustrating to me because, like, when you sign on to most organizations, like you know, in a way, your work like could stay with them, like, but you're also representing the company. At a certain point,、uh, whether you're at work or after work, right? Your employment is actually tied to that when you sign that employment contract. It's not, and it shouldn't be just because you did something stupid and you got caught. Like you shouldn't be doing some of this stuff. Like period.、Um, Jenny, I'm totally with you when I when you say like it's good to hear that people are are not wanting to put up with some of this stuff that is、uh, some of these slights. Some of these、um, mm-hmm. things that you know we now view as、uh, as wrong or insensitive, but then like you know people need to you know I feel like people need to have better judgment because the way that they work they、um, act outside of work their behaviors outside of work you know can come back and you know、uh, bite them in the butt. But you know they also need to know that they shouldn't be acting a fool either outside of work. I mean, look,、well, you can do what you want, but like. You know, you're still representing whatever organization you're with, even if you're not on the clock, and that typically is in most handbooks already as potential violations. And it shouldn't have to wait till social media、uh, or netizens to to call out folks. It's it's in there in those 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 things that we sign. I think on that note, that does、um, bring back to the topic earlier. Is like if I would see like in the past two years, there has been this wave like people are more willing to speak up about their own experience in the workplace. 
which I do think this is a great call on like, no matter what event actually triggered that, but I'm so grateful to see that happen. Um, even like the, the news that we read, um, Michelle Young was yeah. like, hey, ask people to shut up when they, when they were having that uh, speech delivered at the Golden Globe. And I thought that's a great example of like how Asians can break some of the stereotypes that we're having on ourselves. Um, and curious to hear your uh, thoughts on, on that behavior itself. Before we proceed, would it be helpful to, to set some context, to provide some background information on what exactly we're talking about? Um, at, I think, Duck, you were the one who brought this story to our attention. So um, do you want to take a stab at just providing a little bit of you know, background information? So this is, a, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and it may be a little bit later when our audience actually takes a listen uh, to this. But Michelle Yeoh, I think, won uh, an award at the Golden Globes. I think it was it Best Actress, right? Yep. Yeah. So that was actually yeah huge achievement. And I think she was giving her, you know, um, speech, and I and it may have gone a little long. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing, but of course, I saw that clip on the. Uh, the music playing and basically that's a subtle cue for her to wrap it up and get off stage right so they can cut to commercial or whatever it may be and she turns over and she looks at i think where the music was coming from and tells them to shut up and tells them, i can beat you up right and she says it, uh, you know, says that facetiously but you know i think it was really it was really i think it was really nice to just hear it from someone who may have you know, the, the power and the privilege, I think at this point in her career to say, this is really important to me. This is monumental. This is for a lot of the things. And this is for the writers who wrote a role that thought about me and the role that I, the, the actress that I am. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, she, she took a moment and say, hey, give me this moment. And no, I'm not going to shut up you're going to shut up because I'm going to continue my speech. And I thought, that's why I thought it was, uh, that's why I thought it was really cool. Yeah. The other thinking there is, um, I think even like in earlier chat mm -hmm. that we had is talking about for people who already made it, in this case, she did. Like she won the award. She had be publicly uh, publicly recognized with her acting skills, um, and she can say that. And it doesn't seem like there's any like bad consequences, but rather enhance her character a bit more. But for people who haven't made there yet, where they are still like trying, like struggling to get themselves like visible or recognized by their own like capability. I think that presents a bigger challenge for them to be even seen and uh, even act in the way, the same way that Michelle has been has been seen on the stage. I think the the example there is like the Asians has been mm. perceived as sh you should be like non-dominant. You should be like obeying those rules. You should be more obedient that type of stereotypes that does sometimes like put people very difficult to say things like, hey, shut up. Like I'm still haven't done my business here. Because uh, you will be like perceived as you are penetrating that that stereotypes and get penalized by it. And I thought that was like kind of interesting to see like where that line should be joined. Echo, I take it you're extending this back from like where Michelle Yeoh is and where some of us are, right, starting out in organizations, do we have the social capital to do that? That's a really interesting question. I think with any new job applicant who are just starting out and getting, you know, their feet wet in the industry, uh, I think regardless of race and gender, I think it's it's hard to <laughs> say that or get away with that, right? At a certain point, when when do you have that clout? When do you have that social capital to do so? And is it okay? That is a very good point. And you know, uh, there are situations where where people don't say anything, even when they do reach that, you know, that that pinnacle, that that senior leadership position or whatever, their their highest achievement in their field, they still won't speak out because they don't want to rock the boat. So the fact that she did, um, and the fact that she was able to use her platform 
to do that um, I think is, is fantastic and you know, the fact that she was breaking stereotypes it's a lot harder for people like us but you know one can hope that we can make small strides um, you know given the platform that we have So for this segment, uh, we prepared something called myth busting. Um, so I wrote down a few things on a list uh, of, of commonly held, you know, myths that people have about, or you know, perception that people have about Asians, and um, we are either gonna confirm it or debunk it. Uh, so so for the first one, the first myth is Asians are crazy rich, and because they're crazy rich, they don't need any help or resources. Uh, who wants to take this one? Um, sure, Jenny, I can take uh, a crack at this. It's, uh, I believe it is a myth. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people know about uh, household incomes, and uh, that's actually reported. Um, and you can actually break that down by race. And typically, uh, Asian households actually do bring up, uh, bring in the um, highest incomes, uh, regardless of education. One of the things that we actually don't take a look at or don't consider is actually household members person per household member and sometimes that actually gets overlooked because you have multi-generational households within asian families because you have pi uh grandma mom and dad and uh adult children in that uh as well too you add all that up you can maybe see that those incomes are actually a little bit higher um and when you actually consider person per household it's actually very similar to actually white uh, households uh, income. So it's actually, they're not richer. They're just more of them per household on average. Fact, not a myth. Uh, I think there's some truth to that statement where people were seeing like Asians are rich people these days, um, given how fast the economy has grown in the pa over the past few years. Um, so, for example, at on the GT, uh, GDP, GDP level, uh, United States is still like number one. There's no doubt on that. I think back in like 2000, uh, 2021, the, according to the World Bank data, United States has 21.439 trillion um, as a country, and then followed by China, uh, which is like 14.140 uh, trillion. And then next to it is Japan. So big, two, two big like Asian countries has, well, cumulatively, they will like surpass United States. This is why I'm trying to explain like why people have that perception or my seems this perception is true is because people get to a certain degree, they do see the Asian countries has grown significantly over the past few years. And they might also feeling like, oh, this is the same case for people in the States where they see like Asian faces, regardless they are coming from China directly or they, are, have, they have been like living in the States for their entire life, they just assume that, hey, you guys like has been like so walled off. Echo, myth or fact though? Is this a myth or a fact? Oh, that's definitely a myth. But I, the, the reason why I bring it up is like why this could be interpreted as a fact sometimes. Got it. I see what you're doing here. <laughs> Thanks for that, yeah. Echo. And but just to add on to that, the, the last conversation. So um, I don't know if, if our, our listeners know this, but um, the, the race with the largest income divide um, as of 2018 are Asians, Asian Americans. Well, here's the other thing I think we don't talk about. At, you know, as we were actually talking about locations, guess where a lot of Asians actually reside? In bigger cities, you're going to have a lot higher incomes in bigger mm -hmm. cities like New York, San Francisco, because of the higher um, living standards that are there, right? But look, if you're making... Mm -hmm. Even in those cities, you know, some of the most destitute people are actually Asian Americans. And New York City, that's... In New York City, the poorest group are Asian Americans. Like that, I, I recently found out about that, and that just blew my mind because I thought at least in New York City, 
you know, they would be doing much better, but that's not the case. I mean, look, I, I think I mentioned that I lived in Section 8 housing. I mean, that's subsidized housing mm -hmm. for folks that, uh, that, yeah. that need it, right? And we, uh, our family had to do that, I think, for the first seven years when we were first over mm -hmm. there. My other argument is that yeah. because yeah. there's a larger concentration of Asians in larger cities that just require a large, uh, higher income just to uh, you know, pay off that rent or whatever, you're going to see that spike in that higher, um, that higher salary, right? Right. You may see that. And you also may, this also may, um, because of this aggregation of everybody, you're not going to see the folks who are a little bit older, who are, um, you know, on welfare, uh, in a rent controlled environment, trying to make it day by day, mm -hmm. right? Some of that stuff is silenced or kind of washed out when we average all these things together, right? But, yeah, yeah. you know, there are, I think if you even take a look at a, a map of like where Asians are in the U.S., they're mainly concentrated in bigger cities. And guess what? That's where some of the bigger salaries are because the rent, the cost of living is just substantially more. And you may have inflation, based, uh, not inflation, but a higher a number just for, uh, because of that too. And I haven't really seen anything that actually controls for that as well. And it's actually something that's, a, I think, a lot harder to actually go into. Yes, uh, bigger cities are, you know, HCOLs, higher cost of living, um, and you're gonna command a higher salary, but that also um, means that in the same city, you will have people who are on the other extreme um, of poverty, um, people living paycheck to paycheck, um yeah so you know a few weeks ago i mm -hmm. i went to a volunteer event with a friend and um we were serving the the homeless food over um the lunar new year and i was just really amazed at the the amount of i guess diversity that showed up um it wasn't just you know i assume that because it's seattle it would be a lot of you know mostly white people but uh, it was white people, it was black people, it was Asians, mm. Latinos. And the Asian people that showed up were mostly elderly people. Um, who I don't think they were homeless, but they were obviously not, you know, doing that well. I mean, one lady came with her cart filled with plastic, you know, bottles. So, I mean, I was just, when I saw that, uh, it was surprising. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, part of that harsh reality, right? That, you know, the folks who are older who, I don't know if they have, like, dependence or if they lost their dependence uh, over the pandemic or even before that, life is actually, can be pretty hard in the U.S. If you don't have a job, you don't have a house, you don't have a car, like, good luck to you. I mean, it's not like you can just, like, not every city you can rely mass trans to get to work. Right. If you don't have that savings or that cushion, like I think, and this applies to a lot of Americans, right? Um, you could be a paycheck mm -hmm. away from homelessness, you know, and that, that, that is, uh, that's mm -hmm. a harsh reality of just really living in the U.S., especially if you're living paycheck or paycheck. Yeah, life is tough. It's all about making that paycheck. Uh, I, I did want to. Uh, want to add on something to that, which is, you know, when you start parsing out the different subgroups within the Asian American uh, label, you'll start to notice, um, you know, significant pay gaps even within Asian Americans. So, for example, on one end, uh, I, I believe that it was the mean income, the average income for Indian Americans um, is about 100,000, followed by Chinese Americans, which is uh, 70,000. So even among, you know, those two groups, you see a pretty significant gap. And then on the other extreme are, um, I believe, Burmese Americans, whose average um, annual income is around 30,000, which is, you know, um, significantly lower than the other groups. So um, all that to say is there is a big divide. Um, let me add a little bit to that, uh, uh, Jenny. Um, I think what you're bringing up is, you know, I think it, it's, there's, the, the, the type of job uh, and the industry matters as well too, right? If you're um, coming over and going into a tech industry versus if you're leaving a country in, um, um, uh, in, search, uh, in search of asylum you know, or on refugee status, right? 
there's a huge difference there. Uh, and as, as a refugee myself, like, you know, our family came over to the U.S. with literally a box of clothes, right? Because of the, the fear of the prosecution of our former government, potentially even killing my brother and sister when they, they took over, right? There isn't time to prep to get out of the country when that's the case, right? Uh, when other people have an opportunity to actually get educated and um, be able to hone their skills based on a job that's in high demand, I think it's also different. So I think there's a lot of different factors that play into this uh, uh, as well, right? If you have those who are coming over who aren't well educated, the next generation aren't going to really have that uh, those steps to follow, to understand. And not only do they not have that, they also don't know what they need to do in order to get a high paying job in the US, especially if all they see is their friends, family, community members actually going into low skilled labor, right? That is a huge difference. If you go uh, from, uh, if you're in another country and you have the opportunity to get uh, into a certain sector and you know other people in that sector, you're able to network and figure out how the visa work and how um, how it's different uh, for STEM fields staying in the U.S. after um, uh, you know um, uh, their other aspects of their visa expire, and, and and how certain industries allow for potentially uh, green cards that matters a lot as well too. So I think it's a lot more complex than just you know Southeast Asian versus South Asian. There's a lot of factors. And historical and uh, historical aspect and laws that actually in the U.S. from the nineteen uh, the Naturalization Immigration Act of nineteen sixty five actually plays a huge role in bringing talented people into the U.S. that can do the work that uh, they can. Um, South some Southeast Asians some uh, did not come over to the U.S. because of that. So. Mm, so thanks for providing that perspective, Duck. Uh, and you know, you just illustrated exactly why it's important to parse out the differences, right? Okay. The next topic is going to be the negotiation article that Echo sent us um, oh, a, a few weeks ago. Uh, should we open up with just like setting the context? So what was the article? Um, what's the title? Yeah, so the title <laughs> So the title is actually called uh, Asians Don't Ask, Relational Concerns, Negotiation, Propensity, and Starting Salaries. It was done by a professor at MIT, Jackson Liu. Uh, the article is published on Journal of Applied Psychology. That sounds really interesting. So could you say more? It sounds like the title is a mouthful, but what was the, like in a sentence or two, what was the article about? Yeah, so basically what they done is they looked into the starting salary for a 19-year worth of the data from an MBA program mm -hmm. where they compare the starting salary for East Asians Southeast Asians and South Asians and whites. Okay, so Southeast Asians are Vietnamese people. Vietnamese, Cambodian, Thai, Thai, Thai. Uh, Singaporean. Okay, all yeah. right, and then South Asian are Indian, Pakistani. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the East Asians are Chinese, Chinese Japanese, Japanese, Korean. Korean. All right, yep. okay, and what did they find? So they have find there's a salary gap uh, emerged between East Asians, South Asians, and uh, South Asians. So what they have found out is South Asians were able to get paid higher at the starting salary than the two other Asian groups. Huh. So why did they merge Southeast Asians and East Asians? Because I, I imagine you know Chinese and Koreans are different from Vietnamese. and you know, We're totally different. Yeah, we're, we're very totally different. <laughs> we are not alike at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was quite interesting. What they found is um, this gap they only find to be existing in those two 
Asian groups like AKA East Asians and Southeast Asians from like South Asians. And one of the argument they had or the hypothesis they had there is um, East Asians and Southeast Asians were having this like a faith culture, meaning like we value faith, we value the relationship harmony. And so by asking more in your salary, it kind of jeopardized the future relationship with the employer, mm. where the South Asians, on the other hand, have more of this owner culture, meaning like they are, they're more bought to ask for more uh, in their salary. Huh, that's very interesting. Duck, what do you think about this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm kind of contra... I, I like what they uh, this what this um, author did in kind of bringing this together and making the the job the same. Yeah. So it's to showcase that it was actually even when the job is the same, um, uh, when you don't negotiate, you get a lower salary. And he was able to actually showcase it through isolating of all these other variables that you know, regardless of the the job or the industry or the SES and all this. Those who actually didn't negotiate got lower pay. And that's usually how it is. If you were to tell me an industry, if people who didn't negotiate got paid lower, I believe you. I wouldn't, I would say like, I wouldn't need to study it to, to, to know that, but it's good that it's also there in the psychology realm as, uh, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what this is saying is if you are South Asian, you will most likely have a higher salary because you negotiate. Whereas if you are East Asian or Southeast Asian, you're less likely to negotiate. Or ask for that. Uh, ask, ask for, for that more. raise, ask yeah. for more. It, it, I think it's also interesting to think about from this like a compounding factor, like this is just, we're talking about starting salary. This is what they were looking at. Mm-hmm. So imagining the effect, the compounding effect on this, like when you started though, and over the years, like how much of a bigger gap that will present with those different groups. So I thought that that was quite interesting to think about, like, from the time horizon, like how, how much that really continue to widen. Yeah, I mean, because if this is uh, them just coming out of MBA, let's assume that maybe they're, let's say they're 30, and they have 35 years to work. Uh, some folks have a, a little, uh, you know, a leg up on other folks from, from the get go. Yeah, and it does uh, over a career's worth of a lifetime's worth of work that could be a huge difference in in salary, whether you negotiate or not. So I guess what we're saying is people, regardless of who you are, negotiate. (laughs) (laughs) But I I find that it's fascinating that they looked at, you know, um, Southeast and East Asians versus South Asians. Um, And Echo, you brought up an interesting point about, you know, uh, one group being a face culture versus the other group being a what was it? Honor culture. An honor culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that at least like that's the hypothesis they had. Mm-hmm. I don't think they um, be able to like show like a solid evidence on the causal effect of that. But I think it's uh, one of the hypotheses that we could argue. Uh, like yeah. even think about my own experience. Like I didn't ask or negotiate my starting salary when I first get out from the college or from grad school. How about you two? Oh, I didn't either. Um, I think it depended on the situation. So the situation moderated whether I uh, <laughs> negotiated. Okay, tell us more. Uh, so there's this one job that I uh, took uh, a few years back that I, I knew that if I negotiated, I would actually be making more than the person who's supervising me. Uh, actually, it's actually similar to this other job, but I didn't have a close relationship to this supervisor. I did with the other person. And the last thing I wanted to come across as is someone who was just wanting more and more money, where I thought the the offer was decent already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I could have asked for more given my level of work experience and the, my education background. But I did feel that it could have jeopardized the working relationship that we would have had. So I opted not to do that. So there's that honor culture coming yeah, into play. As much as I like to, to fight, fight the stereotype, I, I perpetuated it uh, that time. This other time, I knew what this uh, other person was making because their salary was actually public. 
Uh, and um, I purposely asked for more just to see what uh, the, the organization would say. And because this organization, they were actually clear on their salary. They, they had a lower limit and an upper limit and they were already offering me the upper limit. I just wanted to see what they, they would do. What yeah. they would do, whether they would break the rule that they set for themselves. Did and you get that? I did not get that. And I wasn't surprised <laughs> that I didn't get it. But I wanted uh, to test and try it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Doug, so these are jobs that you asked for, or you're talking about jobs that um, you applied for once you had experience. What about right after college? Right after college? Um, I did negotiate. Um, and why did someone tell you to negotiate? Were you, know, you just was it just part of who you were? Like why did you negotiate? I had this wise woman that I was working with at this uh, other organization, a Jamaican uh, woman from uh, New York that mm -hmm. moved to that was a transplant to Iowa. Uh -huh. Told me one of the first things I needed to do when I got a job was to negotiate. No matter what they tell huh. you to do or whatever they they offer you, just negotiate. And I just listened to her. That's what she told me to do, and that's why I didn't actually got. I think I got a 20% bump because I negotiated. Wow, wow. that's a big bump. Wow. Yeah. I was told not to negotiate. I was also graduating really? during um, the, the the financial crisis, you know, 2008, 2009. Um, and, and so I was told when I got my job offer, my career counselor actually said, this is a good salary. Don't ask for more. So I was just like, okay. But once I started, you know, reading about negotiation and the fact that women don't negotiate mm -hmm. yeah i started ne negotiating and asking but i did not negotiate out of you know fresh out of college seems like that uh career service need, need to be refreshed like they i know <laughs> need to be retrained i know this. yeah mm -hmm. you did actually also bring up a good point earlier um doc on like this information has been public in one of the agency that you worked for. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about like, how does this like a pay transparency will brought into this journey? Because um, knowing like one of the findings from their study that looked at it is they compare the consulting jobs versus non-consulting jobs. Mm -hmm. So for the, all the consulting jobs, all the starting salary are the same, regardless of your background, regardless of your experience, years of experience, uh, they're all the same. And so is that you, industry standard in consulting? I I would think so. I think mm -hmm. that's what they were doing. Okay. Um, I, I think firm be, uh, across like a different firms there are difference. But if you're working the same firm, same title, and you all started from like MBA program, they're gonna get pay you the same. Mm -hmm. So in some way or the other, like thinking about that, that seems like a good strategy for the organization <laughs> to take on. Mm -hmm. Um. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like the transparency on that. Um, I know that New York, um, you know, uh, has required that uh, those who are recruiting in New York list their salary range that they're working with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the past, I think um, organizations would say, we're really competitive. And of course, people would say, well, if you're really competitive, what's your salary? And of course, they won't want to say. And I think one of the things that actually keep um, uh, people of color and women making lower salaries is that uh, organizations are not willing to disclose the salary that they have to work with, mm -hmm. right? And they actually also then utilize um, past salaries to base the their work experience or, or their uh, the, the people's worth from there. And that's also illegal in New York as well. So you can't ask people's uh, previous salaries uh, that they've had because Historically, if they've been systemically uh, been paid lower, of course they're gonna you know tell you they've been making uh, less, mm -hmm. and of course that continues to perpetuate given where you started. So I like what New York has done. I hope that what New York has done will continue to pick up across other states. I know Colorado, and I think Echo, you may mention uh, Cal California may have some of these rules in place as well too to actually protect uh, or workers from, um, you know, really their past uh, discrimination that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember when I was working in HR, you know, compensation even within the organization was taboo. You never discussed it. And even within HR, they were very cautious about sharing comp data internally among the HR team. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a, uh, it's a missed opportunity, right? 
I think it is. I, I also want to say it's BS. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? Explain. Um, I don't know. Like, for for the roles I've been in, for the most part, I've gotten to see almost everyone's salary, mm -hmm. and you can kind Did of. Did you have to ask? Uh, at certain places, I was I was privileged enough to have that information. I didn't have to ask because they needed to give me that information so I can actually. So you were comp. So obviously you knew that. Like yeah. you had access. Okay, you yeah. had your hand in the comp jar. Yeah, yeah, and it also allowed me to take a look at you know other people with like similar performance ratings and whether how they you know got paid or their their uh, their pay raise was affected by that. And you know, a lot of the stuff that we know at the systemic level guess what? It happens at the organizational level too. So mm -hmm. I would ask organizations to kind of check themselves, whether they're compensating people similarly when they get a similar rating mm -hmm. and whether they're bringing people in at similar rates, given yeah. their experience. Uh, that's something that I think organizations have that power and they have access to that. I think a lot of organizations don't want to touch that because they can actually get themselves into trouble if they admit to it. Right and uh, have to uh, do um, back pay, and potentially go through a bunch of litigation as well too. But I think that the data that we know at the system level, at least in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, there are disparities among um, you know women and minorities, and it, it's, there's no way that it happens only in one industry. Just selfishly and personally speaking on this, is I have friends like working the comm team, and. They don't go and check other people's salary because it just become very painful experience to go through. Because then mm -hmm. seeing like how much this person is making and yeah. knowing like type of the work job he or she is doing, and then you are gonna get like, yeah, I think you're gonna go through some like emotional shit. Oh, I'm too nosy. I look at everybody's salary. I don't care if you have more work experience than me, or less. I'm gonna know. I'm gonna know, and then I'm gonna. I may not let them know that I know, but then I may want to figure out what is it that they know that I don't know that I need to pick up in order to get to where they are, mm -hmm. and whether I want to. Right there, there's, you know, I feel like sometimes there's, there's a good amount of pay, and then there's pay that you get that you deal with a bunch of other BS. Yeah, there, I think there's a good threshold mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in there, and I, I, for me, it's like you know, I don't want to go too crazy with it. I mean. What we 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 eat what three times two three times a day like how yeah. much money do you really need yeah after you pay off your loans <laughs> <laughs> and also like I I like the idea that making the range available so you know relatively speaking where you are compared to your peers mm -hmm. but I don't think I wanted to go to like each individual's details and see how much they are making but it's good mm -hmm. for you to know where you are at. Yeah, yeah. So like for someone at my level, this is the range or this mm -hmm. is the average salary. So that's why, I mean, I always look at Glassdoor. So yeah. when I'm negotiating, when I'm looking at um, a new job, potentially I always go there and see, you know, what's the mm -hmm. what's the average for someone with my experience for that level. And I have used it to negotiate my salary. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, I've, um, I've used Built-in NYC. It's a, um, a website that... Um, showcases all the startup jobs in the in city. NYC. So builtinnyc.com. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, and then they have built in Denver and all that. It's really built in. It's all these other big cities there. They'll actually list, uh, you know, uh, if you're like an HR uh, uh, director, this is how much you may should be making. This is the range. So there's actually um, that website is there. Um, if you're working in, um, of course, academia mm -hmm. at a state college, well, you know, that information is actually should be public knowledge. So there mm -hmm. are databases to let people know uh, what those salaries are like. If you had a private college, the Chronicle of Higher Ed actually has a database that also has salary information amongst men and women as well, mm -hmm. too, between instructors, assistant professors, associate professors, and full professors. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, if you're in government, uh, well, well, that's publicly available. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Federal federal government has. I mean, the the, the GS uh, yep. uh, uh, levels have certain ranges that you, you you're within. Uh, I think uh, what's his name, Jerome Powell, right? The, the chairman of the Fed. I think makes one hundred ninety something thousand a year. And I think I just saw that the other day, and I figured he was. You know, he's a government employee. We can probably figure out what GS level he's at if he's making that much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, this might be like going on a little bit, uh, going on tangent there, but I wondered for those jobs, then it actually put organization or individuals to be more focused on the intrinsic. So what really incentivizes you is really the, the work itself. Yeah, I mean, this could be an entire topic on its own. Like, what are ways to incentivize people besides, you know, one's salary, one's financial compensation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as um, as someone who used to have to negotiate uh, salaries with other folks, because I was on the other side, I would always encourage folks to take a look at the total package, not just the the salary, right? Mm -hmm. How many days are you getting off? Is the culture what it, it says it is, right? Is what's above the surface versus what's below the surface, mm -hmm. right? Uh, do they really mean it when they say take time off when you need it? Or is it take time off because it's kind of, you know, not as busy right now, but when we're busy as heck, you're going to have to work like 50, 60 hours a week mm -hmm. and you're not going to be able, you're not gonna be able to complain about it. You know, depending on what job you're going into, I think you should get to know uh, what the expectations are are for that uh given the pay so it's not you know um uh, i I don't, I don't think for the most most i'm gonna say I'm gonna, for the most part i don't think most folks will be all right i guess you know if you have the option to have multiple offers like i would say pick the one that brings you that sanity and allows you to other the other time to do the things that you love because there's a chance you may do things at work you don't really care for mm -hmm. um, and you know that, that could take a toll on you yeah 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 so so the bottom line of this discussion is negotiate your salary yeah do you want to hear the what chat GPT say about this oh yeah sure go ahead yeah are we closing already is it time to close yeah, we, we okay. could close with the haiku wrote by chat GPT on negotiating the, your salary what was the prompt um, the prompt is just asking the chat GPT to write a haiku for the episode on negotiating your salary. Okay. And um, so here's here you go. Know your worth, be bold, negotiate your value high, claim what you deserve. Ooh, I like that. Claim what you deserve. Nice. Yeah. Don't work yourself to death. It's not worth it. <laughs> It's not worth it. And, and your your um, workplace is not your family. <laughs> it's true. It's not. It's not. You do not want to fire your own family. Sometimes you want to. And you should. <laughs> Sometimes you should. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you got to have your back, um, you know, because to them, you know, we are, uh, sad to say, um, dispensable. So, well, on a positive note, let's, uh, should we close. close this out? Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of um, Know Your Worth and Pass It Forward. Uh, we'll catch you all in the next episode. All right. Thank you. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.